Northern New York Community Podcasts, stories from the heart of our community. Welcome to this edition of the Northern New York Community Podcast. I'm your host, Max Del Signor. Before we open our conversation, it is important to take a moment and thank our partners, WPBS-DT and Northern New York Community Foundation. Because of their support, we are able to capture and share these meaningful stories about the importance of giving back in Northern New York. Now, let's sit back, relax, and enjoy this next interview with Charlie and Hygwe Owens. This couple has spent their lifetime in St. Lawrence County. They have worked, raised their children, and given back to the area that means a great deal to them. Charlie and Hy will share memories growing up in St. Lawrence County, how the communities have evolved, and the lasting personal lessons taught through their community philanthropy. It is our pleasure to have Charlie and Hy join us here on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Now, you're both, both North Country natives. Could you share just a little bit about where you grew up and where you met? Charlie, I'll start with you. Okay. Uh, well, I was born in uh, Augensburg. About, I was about 12 when we moved to Messina. And I entered uh, the seventh grade in Messina. I always uh, felt that I was a Messina native, kind of. And I and I uh, uh, met there. We became classmates. And we were uh, classmates all through uh, school and graduated together in 1954. But during that period of time, we kind of went our separate ways. It wasn't until after uh, I was in college, between I think my second and third year, or, uh, about there, when our relationship developed. In uh, August of 54, after I graduated, we were married. Now, hi, it was uh, skating was actually the place where the oh, two of you initially yeah. met, correct? Right. <laughs> At the alcohol field. Alcohol, I had a... Ho uh, the hockey rink at the alcohol yeah, field. Yeah. Back then, different departments in Alcoa had hockey teams. When the ice was open to the community and uh, that's, that's where we kind of met early on. Now, hi, your family settled in Messina, um, obviously, many years before you were born, but their arrival to the States was, is a pretty fascinating story. Can, can you share just the journey that your family took fleeing the Armenian genocide between 1915 and 1918? Right. And the stops that they took to be able to finally settle in Messina and northern New York? Well, my father and my grandmother escaped the genocide. My grandfather on my father's side had a brother and a sister and his father uh, were all, all massacred. My mother lived in a different area of Turkey. She had two sisters and one died now they're all settled in Toronto. And, okay, let's stay with my father's side first. They took a boat from Syria to Ellis Island and ended up in Detroit because my grandmother's brother lived there. And they went. They worked for Ford. My father worked at the milk plant. But I had an uncle who had 
dry cleaning in Messina, who had an orphan daughter that needed care. So my father and my grandmother moved to Messina to take care of her. Was there any difficulty with the family transitioning to the United States or finding, well, finding work or anything? Apparently, no. They had to learn the language. My father went to night school and took a course. Oh, I don't know how long he took it, but he did not get along with the teacher, so he quit. <laughs> <laughs> he was hoping night school was going to be the gateway yeah, to yeah. kind of conquering right. that barrier in language. Right. But that's how they got to be seen. Now, my mother and her mother went from, well, she lived in Odana, A-D-O-N-A, Turkey. And um, their father abandoned them, and so they went to Paris, where my great uncle, who was a priest, to stay with them. My mother went to school in Paris up to eighth grade. Her sister in Toronto made passage for her to come to the States. And she ended up in Montreal. She came over on a canard. How my father and my mother met was through uh, my aunt. Oh. They were married in Montreal in 1930, I think. So given that life experience for your family uh, and, you know, really being a part of, you know, such a turbulent time in, you know, world history um, and coming to the States to try to get acclimated, hearing about what your family went through. How did that impact you as you grew up and as you became a mother and a parent? I just, I, I just appreciated I was able to do what I could where they, they weren't able to do much to begin with. You know, they did what they could and I guess we did too. Charlie, as you noted, you both actually went to college and graduated from the Albany area. Uh -huh. I went to business school and you from the pharmacy school and married shortly thereafter, as you mentioned, in 1954. What brought both of you back to the North Country after college was completed? Well, probably uh, my family, my mother and father were still here, my brother, we lived all our life uh, here. And uh, I found employment uh, as a pharmacist my father was a pharmacist. As soon as I turned 16, he kind of suggested I get a, a working paper. <laughs> <laughs> so I took a suggestion. <laughs> and uh, I went to work on the fountain, Sudden Stool Fountain, when I turned 16. I had never been away from New York State, so to speak, growing up, so I was comfortable. Never had any great desire to live anywhere else. A, a follow-up question to that. What do you appreciate the most about being born, raised, and living in the North Country? It's, 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 it's a safe environment. I think you know, socially and so forth, uh, comfortable. I just feel at home in it. 
As much as I traveled when I worked and saw the country uh, and so forth, I think it goes, it's hard to, to beat this, this area as far as the beauty of it, the simple uh, lifestyles and uh, the opportunities. Uh, they're here if you look, look for them. Like I say, it's uh, relatively crime-free, and I think the the public education system is good. We have probably all as much of an opportunity here as we would have any other place. So we, I guess, we just became a native. You mentioned after you graduated college and coming back to the North Country, that was a really bustling era for St. Lawrence County in northern New York, and in particular the St. Lawrence Seaway and Alcoa were really thriving at that time. Right. Can you each share just what you remember about being back in this, this area and living here in the 1950s, 1960s, what it was like with the Seaway and Alcoa and business really thriving in the county? You want me to take that first? <laughs> well, Messina, uh, was an entirely different community than Ogdensburg was, I think, as I remember. Messina with Alcoa had more, I shouldn't say educated people, but they brought in engineers and they would stay a few years and move on. And they were always, uh, they, were, they were more aggressive. Uh, I guess, uh, I don't know if the word aggressive, is right in Messina, enthusiastic about their community. Uh, they supported their community. Uh, and then there were a large, there was a large uh, Armenian community, there was a large Italian community, a large French community, all in that area. And uh, everybody got along. It, it was, uh, the school was good, uh, a lot of spirit there. And, there just seemed to be an element of enthusiasm in the community that I hadn't experienced anywhere before. I don't know whether that answers your question. It does. Not. It does partly. Yeah, you mentioned that with engineers and you know those of skilled trades coming into work for you know two booming industries, in particular the Seaway. Um, one in our previous conversation, you had mentioned that. Seemed like every day in Messina was like the day before Christmas. Yeah, Just so much was. activity and things happening, and the enthusiasm, as, as you mentioned before. Can you can you talk a little bit, Charlie, just about the the Seaway and its impact in the area from what you saw? The the sea the Seaway really got underway in uh, 1955, and. Uh, there was some apprehension, I think, within the community. Just what is going to happen? In the end, really nothing happened uh, other than the fact that uh, crime didn't go up. It wasn't going to turn into a, a mill city or something like that. And business was good. People working on the seaway blended right into the community. It was a bustling community. I really don't know how to put it much different. It's from a business standpoint. Some of the experiences I had in the store and stuff, I'll never forget. Because we had, Kinney had remodeled the 
their old store and expanded it, and we had a brand new store. So a lot of the contractors, uh, uh, when they had special needs, would come to us. We supplied some very unique uh, items to them that today we couldn't. For example, uh, we used to sell ether by the gallon in the wintertime to uh, all the contractors. They used it to start their diesel engines. One time, a uh, company representative came in and wanted a ton of sulfur. Well, we, uh, the company handled bulk, bulk sulfur. Gardeners and stuff used it, but not by the ton. <laughs> so I called uh, the pharmaceutical buyer and uh, said, I need a ton of sulfur. It took a little convincing, but he said, I'll get back to you. So about 10 minutes later, he called back and he says, it's ordered. <laughs> so in two or three days, and it come, I think it came from Slack Chemical in Carthage, but it came in 50, 40 pound craft paper bags, all covered with dust. I never forget unloading it at the foot of the conveyor because everything just was full of dust. The, the most unique or different prescription I ever filled happened in, in, Governor, in uh, Messina. Cold winter night, the clerk uh, handed back a prescription to me to be filled. It was written by a, a local physician and uh, it was written for a pediatric uh, antibiotic syrup, a teaspoonful every six hours. I looked in the heading and uh, there was a lady's name there, but after it, uh, it was the word monkey. <laughs> and uh, that caught my attention. <laughs> and I looked up and standing in front of the counter was a, a lady in a fur coat. And out of the fur coat, stuck the head of a monkey. <laughs> so I went out and questioned what she was doing in Messina in the middle of the winter with a monkey. And she went on to tell me that her husband was an engineer on, with one of the companies on the seaway, and he had been stationed in Central America for four years. And uh, she'd acquired this monkey. And, uh, got sick, uh, pr presumably, probably, pneumonia, and uh, not knowing where to go, she took it to the local doctor, had a little clinic there. Uh, I never saw her after that, don't remember seeing the monkey after that. So was that the first and last time you filled out a prescription for a monkey? Yeah, it's the only one, <laughs> <laughs> the only one. Uh, another uh, interesting, uh, time was uh, one of the big three television companies wanted to do a documentary on the uh, seaway and they were wanted to do it on a Sunday afternoon in the summer and so forth. They wanted to do a segment on the, on the local input and they wanted to do it in our store. Ed Moses uh, was our store manager at the time, and he was a head of the uh, Chamber of Commerce or the Downtown uh, Businessmen's Association. So we agreed, and, uh, and Ed got the mayor and the 
chief of police and various dignitaries and so forth together. The day before they were going to broadcast nationwide, they wanted to do a run-through. So I think it was either a Friday or Saturday before that, they made arrangements. And, and they come with a crew. And uh, of course, back then, there was no tape television. What you saw on your screen was happening somewhere. So in come the crew. The camera was just, just a huge camera and standing at eye level on a tripod with wheels. A couple with lights, floodlights, light the, the area. And an announcer who would be doing the interviewing and the announcing and so forth. And a director who was on the telephone to New York. So they got it all set up and the director got the go-ahead and so he turned the camera on they turned the lights on blew the whole circuit <laughs> everything went dark cash register went down <laughs> what to do well ed knew the electrician that had wired the the area about three or four years before that rounded him up got him there and i don't know what he did but on that sunday afternoon in the summer kinney's was on television coast to coast for about oh five ten minutes wow it was uh, it was interesting good exposure for the local brand yeah <laughs> <laughs> we had a fellow there that could uh, uh make a sign uh, a nice sign free hand. So he made a little sign that said, uh, Kinney Drugs welcomes you to Messina, New York, or something like that. He, he hung it on the front of the cash register. Plan was that the, they'd focus the camera on the register and then back away and then swing it around through the store kind and then come to this group and do the interviews. Well, the director saw that sign. He said, that's got to go. He said, we're not advertising Kinney, drug to <laughs> coast to coast. So that, 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 was, that was interesting. Charlie, what was it like to continue the family legacy that you had? You know, your father worked at Kinney's. You kind of followed a little bit in his footsteps and even became vice president for Kinney's at one time. What does that mean to you just family ties to a local business for a long time? Well, my father uh, worked for an independent drugstore drug, uh, man in, in Augsburg. And there were three other drugstores in Augsburg at the time. In 1943, they were pretty tough years and uh, he, he went out of business. So my, my father was out of work. The local pharmacies approached him and then Harold Kenny approached him and uh, so my father and her mother decided they'd make a change and go to go to Messina as it worked out I remember sitting at the uh, dinner table I guess it was the fall of, uh, of my senior year he said what are you going to do it was a foregone conclusion I'd go to 
go to college probably. Uh, oh, I, I don't know, I hadn't really thought too much, but I'd worked on the fountain and I'd worked with him and I said, well, maybe I'll go to pharmacy school. He said, well, if you do, he said, you'll never get rich, but you'll always have food on the table. I thought that sounded pretty good. I like to eat. <laughs> so away I went and uh, the Kinney Company, uh, not personally, but I knew the Kinney family and I knew a lot of the employees. At, the time, at that time, uh, Kinney's only had, I think, seven stores when I started. And uh, so it was kind of a family affair. They're the only ones that ever gave me a paycheck. As, as it was, I started as a staff far, far, pharmacist uh, in Messina, and then in 1958, things were beginning to wind down in Messina. The seaway was winding down, but to, to go back just a bit, right at that period of time, from about 56 to maybe the beginning of the 60s, in 56, Alcoa had a big layoff. But the, the, the construction was there. A lot of those people went to construction. Also, at the same time, they were building General Motors and, and uh, Reynolds Metals. So everything went, worked very well. And that maintained that period of prosperity for a while. But then I went, when I went to Malone in 58, I opened Kenny's number 12 store managed that for 15 years and then went to was uh, promoted to a store supervisor moved to uh, in governor in uh, 1973 and they had 21 stores at that time and then in 1979 i was uh, made a vice president and was in charge of purchasing pharmaceuticals uh, and uh, head of the uh, pharmacy warehouse by that time, we had uh, probably about 40, 50 stores. Significant growth by then. Yeah, and uh, oh, probably around the mid-80s, I kind of lost track now. Pharmacy Warehouse was moved up to the main warehouse that you see on Route 11. I was in charge of all purchasing. And then the warehouse manager reported to me, and I got involved in advertising. And, so forth uh, at the same time and uh, then in uh, 1994 I retired. I was on the board of directors at the time. I stayed on the board until I was 72 and uh, then I went off the board because of age and so forth. But December 24th, 1955, my Christmas gift from the company was one share of stock, Kinney's. The, the Kinney family always felt that people in areas of responsibility, pharmacists perhaps, uh, department heads, uh, key people should own stock in the company. And they promoted that. And uh, uh, at Christmas time, uh, uh, when I was a store manager, I got two shares. And <laughs> from time to time, the, the Kinney family would make 
some of their own stock available. And, uh, I bought when I could. So over the years, I acquired a, a substantial investment in the company. And your investment together as a couple went, you know, obviously beyond the profession. You guys were very involved in your community in, in myriad ways, whether it be Rotary or your church. Can you talk a little bit about where some of those key values of philanthropy, where they came from? Hi, I'll start with you first on that question. I came from family first. Uh, I guess from my parents. It was always drummed into us that uh, if we could, we would. You know, they were refugees. And so um, uh, my father sponsored uh, a refugee and brought him over here and uh, put him to work. And my dad had a dry cleaning store. So, uh, and brought him over and to teach him the trade. But unfortunately, he was not very appreciative. He thought that the, the streets were going to be paved with gold and he was going to marry the daughter of the, of the one that sponsored him. And uh, he got a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, I felt, you know, my dad did this for him to help him, and he was not very appreciative. How old were you at the time, hi? What's that? How old were you at the time? Well, I had just got home from, from Albany, from college, and uh, so and my father I was not very appreciative of his idea of marrying his daughter. And he eventually left Mesita because there wasn't a big enough place for him. And eventually went to the city. I don't know where he went. Well, it was good riddance. <laughs> Didn't quite fit the vision he was looking and, for. But here he was. We were trying to help him. My dad didn't have that, you know, wasn't rich from a dry cleaning business, you know. And we uh, fitted a room for him in the house. Uh, but uh, as far as my church, I guess churches are philanthropists, I guess. I tried to help. As I told you before, I. I played the organ church with, and they charged me. And uh, I helped put on uh, fall bazaars and uh, made soup for them. <laughs> I said, Charles, do you mean philanthropy? This has to be money or your services? Or, uh, it's a good, no, it's a good point because you know, one of the things that we try to convey as a community foundation, as the Northern New York Community Foundation does, in terms of inclusiveness and philanthropy, because it is more than just your means financially, it's your means with your talents and service, as you said, hi. You know, I think that's just equally as important when it comes to understanding philanthropy. Yeah. Uh, the dollar plays a part in that equation, but 
your time and volunteering is equally important, if not more so, depending on the cause. Uh, right. And we try helping them, both churches. We don't go to the same church. You know, money-wise also, you know, whenever something comes up, like the roof. <laughs> mm -hmm. What's it like to be able to do all of this giving back together as a couple? What does that mean to you? Well, I, I think it kind of brings us closer together. I mean, uh, if we uh, are focused on the same uh, charity or share a common interest in it, I, I think about using the uh, scholarship uh, as uh, an example of that. Uh, when the company uh, in 2008 bought back all the stock of uh, former employees. Uh, the, at that time, I knew we would have more than we needed. We were living comfortably. Our needs were being met. The f family was pretty much on their own. We got together and said, what are we going to do with this? You know, to benefit somebody, something, you know, you could give it to the a church, you give it to a hospital, you can give it here or there. But as we talked about it, I, I think uh, the STEM program was in the media, in the newspapers and stuff. And that caught my eye. And uh, I've always uh, felt very strongly about education. With four good colleges, top-rate colleges, two, two private, two a part of the SUNY system in St. Lawrence County, and 17 high schools, I believe, uh, in St. Lawrence County. Put all that together and you've got a large student base right here in St. Lawrence County. We kind of uh, gravitated towards a scholarship, a STEM scholarship. I'm a firm believer in uh, the sciences. I, mean, I think uh, that's probably uh, what's made this country the country it is today. I think t two things, uh, the form of government, the constitutional, uh, we're a constitutional republic, which gives the individual rights that aren't available to many others around the world. In that environment, uh, this country has produced uh, uh, Alexander Graham Bell and the telephone, uh, Bill Gates and uh, Microsoft, Steve Jobs and the iPod and the iTelephone. Look, look at where the telephone has developed from Alexander Graham Bell's day to the smartphone. Thomas Watson, I think his name was, that tinkered on automation and the technology of automation and stuff. Now today it's IBM. So uh, education comes to appreciate more and more the older I get. Is there a hope too that a scholarship like this can inspire the students who are fortunate enough to receive it to maybe stay locally as well and maybe invest whatever they receive from their education from a STEM field 
to maybe come back to the North Country and contribute as, as they can? Yeah, uh, it'd be nice if that happened. <laughs> but That's quite frankly, I don't really see, uh, see it happening to the degree that we'd like to see it happen. Because this area, I think its biggest future lives in, in the area of agriculture and tourism. I, I, we've witnessed what's happened to Messina. Even with the power and everything there, with Alcoa and General Motors and uh, Reynolds, even with all that going for him, today we, we've lost General Motors and, and uh, Reynolds. And Alcoa is very tenuous, so uh, it would be nice. To go back to doing things as a couple, I think we were both fortunate to have parents who set fine examples for both of us. Hi, what are some of those same values that your parents taught you yeah. that you've been able to share with your children? Right. I don't know, just, just being loving parents, I guess. Learning to appreciate what you have because we didn't have that much. My kids always wondered why, why they couldn't have something. <laughs> I think that's the biggest value. Appreciate what you have. You made church a big part of their life. We both, to a degree, but I did most the leadership in that area. My excuse, and it's probably no more than excuse, <laughs> is earlier in my career, uh, I worked every other Sunday, and uh, so she kind of got the kids uh, that way. But from my own experience, uh, growing up, I was president or uh, uh, treasurer of the uh, Sunday school, and uh, my parents were very strong in the church. We both share that background. When you think about the future of the North Country and St. Lawrence County, Charlie, you touched a little bit on you know the industries that have that you think have an opportunity to maybe shine in this area. What kind of role can philanthropy play in the future success of where we live here in the North Country? This may be one thing that's already happened to a great degree. And that's the Adirondack Park. A lot of that land in the park has been donated and set aside for the use of whoever, the natives as well as the tourists. You can think of the Trudeau Institute in Saranac Lake. Well, that has been here for years and years, and it's the Trudeau family originally and it stayed with us. I don't know if we'll ever see another General Electric or General Motors or anything in the North Country. What's, what's the catalyst? If philanthropy can help not reinvent a region, but make it stronger, make it better, and kind of evolve to those changing needs, what can residents here do to give back, to make a community thrive a little bit better, even if those industries are gone? 
what, what role can, can the people play? I don't know what's here to bring, bring them there, really. I think they've got the colleges, of course, but uh, I don't know. Like, they come and live in Governor, and they say there's nothing in Governor. But they're a couple hours. I don't know how long it takes to go to Montreal. Mm -hmm. You've got Carson and, and St. Lawrence and so forth. Now we have uh, United Helpers placed outside of Canada, and they're hopefully big doctors and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, if you haven't got any industry, maybe we have to look at the education and health there. Mm -hmm. uh, if we haven't got that. Well, I think something you both touched on makes are, are good points. I mean, you have, there are destinations nearby and there are natural resources that, you know, as far as quality of life and beautification of the area, there's plenty of that. And there's plenty of uh, people who have invested their time and, and their energy and resources to kind of make those sustainable uh -huh. so that folks can have access to these great quality right. of life elements that we do get to enjoy. And thinking about that, younger generation <clears throat> that you talked about and what we can do to inspire them to give back as you have, whether it be with a financial gift of their own or maybe more importantly just to volunteer their time. What do you think is most important for us or for your generation to do to inspire that next generation coming up? What would it take to inspire them, you think, to, to give back as you have? Well, I don't what know. is on TV? <laughs> <laughs> maybe some oh, of the. No. I'd like to think that maybe some of the people that are going to benefit from this scholarship uh, will not forget it and uh, at some point down the road share some of their success with uh, this area. Obviously, uh, if they're graduating from our schools here, they've lived here and benefited from the quality of life here. And if the scholarship helped them get to where they are going to be in another 30 years, hopefully they'll uh, support the area. I don't know, maybe that's wishful thinking. A few years ago, families didn't stray as much as I do today. Families probably lived within a radius of maybe 50 miles. Like in my uh, own lifetime, my grandfather had a farm. More people lived on farms and lived in villages. And uh, when all that changed, and uh, now our children are farther away than we were ever farther away from our parents. Yeah, the connectedness between families isn't what it used to be? No, I don't think so, really. That's a sad thing to say. I think the memories are there and so forth, but they don't celebrate the holidays together. And that's because they've, they've scattered so far away. You know, a group that stayed very connected and I think it's one of the first times we've kind of delved into it on this podcast is People who give in St. Lawrence County, we really haven't touched on this region yet, and we're taking the opportunity to do it now. But there's a really strong connectedness of individuals and couples and families that have made a point to give back and reinvest in St. Lawrence County, just as you have. 
as you look back and you see you know, folks who have made an investment of their time and talent um, or financially to St. Lawrence County, what kind of impact can that have on a community? Oh, it brings them together, I think. I think of the United Helpers Home and, and people being scattered. They get a lot of support from people who have scattered, sons and daughters maybe, of uh, former moms and dads that benefited from uh, the United Helpers. A lot of them support that financially, not so much maybe by being physically or active uh, there. The same is, is true with the uh, Remington Museum. Mm -hmm. That's supported by people all over the country to a degree, as, but they're supported very well by people within the county and the surrounding area. So each of those nonprofit organizations or community causes, as we talked about, have such strong support, donors, volunteers, certainly leads to, or at least gives you a, the thinking that at least the future will be bright for philanthropy in St. Lawrence County. Two of you have certainly demonstrated that across your life in many ways. The Evergreen STEM Scholarship is a really good example of that at the Community Foundation, where you hope you'll be able to impact the lives of these students forever in many ways by supporting their education. At the end of the day for everything that you have done together, if somebody is to ask you, what is the legacy of Charlie and High Owens, what would you hope that to be? Uh, that we were good citizens, I guess. And we were willing to share what we accumulated in life with the, the people of St. Lawrence County. I, I guess I feel about the same, that we're responsible citizens of the community, they are, you know, responsible citizens. Get along with your neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's easy to say that this area, and especially St. Lawrence County, is grateful for your thoughtful philanthropy and your willingness to find ways to make our community special. It is an important example to share with others, and we believe the next generation will hopefully follow your lead, and you had some good words to impart as part of the interview. Thanks again for coming on the podcast to share your story and just your reflections on what philanthropy has really meant to both of you. You know, I think, uh, Max, uh, we began to contribute to the Northern New York Community Foundation maybe as far back as seven, eight, ten years ago. Just the exist existence of the Northern New York Community Foundation here makes it easy for people like us to practice philanthropy. I, I don't know who I would ever have turned to to uh, administer it. I worked with a, a, a fellow in uh, Rochester who would have, <laughs> would have liked to have, say, uh, had a hand in it, but uh, the, those that's always there for individuals, but here's an organization that welcomes the participants who want to practice philanthropy. It's a real 
real valuable service to the area. Well, we certainly appreciate those kind words and you know, we're certainly honored to be a part, to have the STEM scholarship really be a part of, part of what, we, what we administer and for us to play a small role in, in your legacy and being able to help these students position themselves for future success means a great deal to us. Looking back, these kids are 18, 19 years old now. What are they going to experience in their lifetime? It just boggles the mind that what they can accomplish given the freedom to do it and the desire to do it. Well, and it's amazing what's available to them on top of that. Yeah. I mean, so as far as accessibility and resources available and scholarships certainly to help them do that as far as their education is concerned. Think in the area of medicine, uh, Dr. Sabin, one man discovered the polio vaccine. Now it's two or three drops on the baby's tongue and there's no more polio. There's no polio in, in North and South America. There's a little bit, very little in Pakistan and in some areas of Africa. What a difference that one man made. It's amazing. Well, the mission of Rotary, right? I mean, Rotary yeah. was the one that really Rotary started, took that on. Uh, they started in uh, 80, I'm going to say about 81, 82. And now Bill Gates and Melinda Gates are supporting it. Mm -hmm. uh, probably the one that may crack cancer, who knows? He may be amongst us right now. I was going to say, maybe it'll be some of these students that receive a scholarship or, yeah. like you said, are living today that we, maybe we'll see it, maybe we won't, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Time will tell. Charlie and Hi, thanks again for your kind words and many thanks again to all of you for tuning in. Remember, you can listen to other episodes of the Northern New York Community Podcast anytime on your smartphone or any mobile device and it is always free. Find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play or check out our website, www.nnycpodcast.com. Thanks again to PBS and the Northern New York Community Foundation for their support of this production. We will catch you next time on the Northern New York Community Podcast. Northern New York Community Podcast, stories from the heart of our community.